Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and thanks especially if you've taken a moment sometime this week to recommend the show to someone you think might enjoy it. I am grateful. Thanks also to all of you who have already signed up for the Slee Ricketts secret show. I just uploaded a new episode Friday. Uh, so go to sleeverguts.substack.com to sign up now. There's also so kind of a cool new thing. I am still, if you go on there and you sign up for the free subscription, just put in your email address. That's all you got to do. Uh, I will give you a free week of The Secret Show. But on top of that, if you sign up for the free subscription, uh, Substack now has a feature that allows me to send out a preview to all of the free subscribers. So you will get those about three times a month. That's what I'm aiming for, about three times a month. Um, if I keep it up, I may end up increasing the annual rate. So sign up now so while you can uh, well you can get your, your cheaper rate. I think that's all I was gonna say about that. Oh, and we do have t-shirts with the logo in black as well as in white now and a bunch of new colors. And we have hoodies, so go uh, go to the link on the show notes page to see the merch store. Still got a lot of really good correspondence. Um, you got even more this week. So I, I, I am getting a show together that will largely just be digging into all of that juicy stuff. I am. There's a great. I got a great note from Ethan about Tiny Tim and Cameron and I are going to tackle that one separately in a different episode. But I will be getting to all of that soon enough. Uh, for now, though, I have Cameron and Alice and I have a, a WhatsApp thread with Brian. We also, you know, have a number of email threads. Talking, we've been talking a lot about difficulty lately. Some of that gets into the show. Some of it doesn't. We're we. Uh, I think Alice is somewhere in the middle, and then Cameron and I are sort of on opposite ends of the question of difficulty in poetry. But we we got we had a really great conversation about it while I was out of town. This my my uh, my audio is a little funny cuz Alice was nice enough to to handle the recording end from Australia, but we we talked for quite a long time. It was a really dense conversation. I don't really want to I mean I compressed it some, but I don't really want to cut much out, so I'm breaking it in half. I'm going to do half this week and half either next week or uh, another week sometime soon, but it is all about difficulty and I think you will enjoy it. I wanted to, okay, so so just real quick, because it has been on my mind, I, I'm going to talk about all this judging, poetry contest judging stuff I've been doing, because I have some thoughts on that. That's been a, 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 uh, a privilege and a trial, <laughs> but, but it, I, I've been thinking about this, this question lately. So I have this pet peeve when it comes to language. There's a thing that people often say about language that writers often say about language. And it occurred to me recently that specifically writers and poets in particular who praise or practice particularly difficult or dense or opaque poetry tend to say this thing a lot. The statement that has always rubbed me the wrong way is just this. Words fail. Words fail. Sometimes they'll say language fails. Uh, words can't express and so forth. But this is a pretty frequent topic of consideration for difficult poets. 
And you know, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting poem. Cameron is um, Cameron and Alice and I have been digging into separately. We may get to it in another episode, but but he, you know, he made the point that he thinks that this, you know, dense and long and and difficult but maybe impressive poem is about language. And I have often heard this that a lot of really difficult, dense poems are about language. And I think that is probably a really worthwhile thing to write poetry about. I think that my own irritation at it is is maybe a character flaw, but it's one that I, I think I was able to make a little bit more sense of this week. So uh, I'm going to speak in extremely general terms here because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I will just say that while my wife was in, well, we were in Baltimore. My wife was in her medical school training and then her residency, which is an additional four years of training after medical school. She and her colleagues noticed that some of the, so uh, medical students and certainly psychiatric residents, but, but I believe medical students as a whole are now majority female. Most of them are women. And some, some specialties like psychiatry, overwhelmingly so. But they noticed that, you know, among the faculty, among the attendings, and especially among the senior attendings, uh, it was only a minority who were women. And some of those female senior attendings, not all, not even most, but some, seemed to have maybe a special chip on their shoulder when it came to female residents and female medical students. Again, speaking only in the most general of terms, not talking about the psychiatric department in particular, but just speaking in very general terms. I think this is a phenomenon that occurs outside of medicine as well. That in some cases, women, older women who had you know a particularly difficult time getting through training at an, in an earlier generation when it was much harder for women to get through, can sometimes take out some of that uh, long stewing frustration on new female uh, trainees, as if to say, "You need to work as hard as I did. I hope you have, you should have to suffer everything that I suffered." And. I found myself having that response. I've always thought that was a rather ungenerous response, but I found myself having that response recently when uh, Jonathan recommended this uh, documentary series slash reality show on Netflix called Love on the Spectrum. I ended up watching part of two different uh pilots because there's both an Australian version and an American version but my response to both was more or less the same right this is this this is a show about adults with autism trying to date trying to find love sometimes with each other often not with each other uh just trying to go out in the world and uh get into sexual or romantic or you know partnership relationships with uh, with other human beings. And my response to almost all of these people was surprising to myself was uh, anger. I was so angry at them. I, I was so impatient with them. I wanted so much for them to stop being so weird and to think more about what was happening in the minds of the people they were talking to to do a better job of imagining the other person's experience rather than getting so caught up in their own private obsessions. 
It made me so angry watching them indulge all of their weirdo impulses. And if that sounds especially uncharitable, it is uncharitable, but it is a lack of charity that comes that I come by truly because it reminded me so much of my own childhood and adolescence. You know, the problem for me growing up was never words. I remember in uh, I was in fourth grade, I think, and a kid in my class got into some kind of trouble with the teachers, and he, he told me about it at recess, and I observed that they'd made a number of uh, this sounds so fucking nerdy. I observed, in hearing his account, that they'd made a number of um, uh, of protocol of of logical and uh, policy based errors. That is, that they had acted in a way that was inconsistent with the previous behavior, or was not totally adherent to the school's code of conduct or handbook or had a you know in, involved a an irrational assumption along the way and so what I did I do being fucking little nerd that I was I wrote up on a piece of loose leaf a bullet pointed list of uh, fallacies that the teachers had committed I know I sound like the worst kind of redditor but the, I swear reddit didn't exist at the time or at least I wasn't aware of it if it did um, I wrote out all of their logical uh, all of the problems with their arguments, all of the problems with uh, the the <laughs> the fourth grade disciplinary charges that they had brought against him, and I gave them to him, and I said, "Well, you should go talk to them about and use this as a skeletal outline of your argument because I think these are really your strongest points of." Uh, of debate with them. What did he do? Being the fucking moron that he was, he went to the teachers and he handed it over. He just gave them this loose leaf uh, uh, sheet of bullet points I'd made for him. The teachers came to me and of course my first thought was, I had two thoughts. One was, oh, I'm in trouble now. And two was, I've been careful not to do anything that's against the rules. And I was totally unprepared for what I actually got which was uh, crying. The teacher was really hurt that I had spoken of her and of her thinking in such brutally logical terms that I had treated uh, my fellow classmate like I was some kind of lawyer and it was my job to, to mess her up or to catch her out. And she thought of me as a good student and somebody who cared about her and the classroom and and learn a good learning environment and wasn't this fellow student of mine constantly uh, disrupting the class and wasn't he constantly bullying me and both of those things were true but I just behaved in a way that felt to me very rational and very precise in my language and so many fucking times I had that problem talking on the phone with girls, trying to trying to interact with teachers anytime I disagreed with them. I got told by a girl in college at, at a dance <laughs> while she was dancing with me, she leaned close. I think she really meant to be helping me. She meant this as a kindness. She leaned into my ear and she said, you know, you'd fuck a lot more if you just shut up. And that's been the story of my life. And so it's, it has been not that I have learned to shut up, but that I have learned that it's not words that fail. The words uh, are just a limited set of tools. It would be like, it would be like if you were, uh, if you watched somebody get mugged and sitting on the table next to him was a fucking chess set. And you said, you know, chess is supposed to be a game of combat, but 
chess pieces fail when it comes to real life. No, they don't fucking fail. No, the guy just got fucking mugged and this is a chess set and it's good at playing chess. Language is a set of tools. It's really amazingly good at what it does. It's people who are difficult. I know I sound a little bit like uh, those who, who would argue that guns don't kill people, people kill people. I mean, you know, I hate to echo my four year, fourth grade self, but they are right. You know, it is people who kill people. It's just the problem is that we can't make laws against the existence of people, whereas maybe we can regulate guns a little bit. Not to dig again into that fucking can of worms. But it, I, I realize that I, it, I have a special intolerance for those who use language in a way that accords only with their own private meanings. And this was the big lesson it took me for fucking ever in college to learn with my own poetry was that it was not enough to use pretty words. It was not enough to combine them in interesting ways. It was not enough to... Uh, to be specific, to be original in my language, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to build uh, impressive or consistent structures with sound or with typography. None of this was enough. I could do be as fancy as I wanted in my language, and none of that would do. Because the thing I really had to get at, the big challenge, was crossing over into another person's mind, was imagining the reader's experience. The same incredibly onerous task I had been, that had been drilled into me since I was a fucking kid, that I'd been told over and over and over again I had to learn. And it's made me a, a particularly ungenerous uh, viewer of uh, love on the spectrum. And I think it's probably also made me an ungenerous reader of of idiosyncratic poetry, of poetry that is fundamentally interested as, as uh, I think, I think it was Cameron said of Alvin Feynman's poetry. No, it wasn't Cameron. I think it was Eric Smith. I had a really good text exchange with Eric about who, who loves Alvin Feynman's poetry. I think Eric was the one who said, and I hope I'm not uh, embarrassing you because I think it was just a really lovely insight, but he said that he thought that Feynman was ultimately communicating with himself in his poems. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not. It's not an easy thing to communicate with yourself. But that that's maybe really notably what he's, not the only thing that he's doing, but the notable thing that he's doing is he's communicating with himself. And I think, I, I believe that some people can take real pleasure in observing that. I fear that I can't. I fear that it just makes me want to slap him silly and say, stop being such a fucking weirdo. Crumple up your fucking loose leaf. Stop being a nerd. Go take some acting classes and learn how to sit up straight and, and look, your, look your peers in the eye. Give a firm handshake. And if you would just shut your goddamn mouth, then you might fuck a lot more. I'm really interested in sort of face-to-face uh, -face poetry community because I've never... I've ne I'm, you know, I'm very young, obviously, but I've never experienced that. I've all I've experienced because I, I don't live with anyone who likes poetry that much. Mm -hmm. So the people I correspond um, with po uh, about with poetry is like um, the people who I email. So Shane, Matthew, a few other people. They're the only sort of contacts I have with poetry in a few online forums. So that's very much sort of much more. I guess but when you're emailing someone, you're like, 
writing letters to people like Emily Dickinson did. It's a much more mm. sort of controlled and formulated a conversation. While so I'm really interested in sort of poetry communities in the flesh because they're much well, they're much they're much more sort of human in that way, right? Because you're mm. just face to face with someone just talking spontaneously. Yeah. Matthew's just uh, popped up. I think that's really normal. Like I, I've found that, you know, up until I don't know, like three weeks ago, that was the case for me. <laughs> I, just, I just basically talked to people by email and stuff like that. And yeah, I, I certainly didn't find my people in London. Oh my god, he's making so much noise! What are you doing, bro? Sounds like he's building something. <laughs> he's building something. He's building something. Hey, man. Can you hear us? You probably, I don't think. Oh, uh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, yeah, cool. Getting my things hooked up. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it isn't this, but the way your volume is, Matthew, it sounds like you're literally lifting and throwing down weights. <laughs> it's like yeah. amusing yeah, how it's... loud it is. Yeah, no, exactly. It feels about the same. How's, uh, how's life? You're still in with your family for the. Yeah, moment? yeah. It's all right. It's, I entered another, I'm a fool. I entered another um, seven day poetry. You know, like uh, April Napo, I entered like a mini version of that where it's writing for seven days, and I yeah. the uh, okay. it's the it's the fifth day, so I should have I I should have written and posted five poems. Unfortunately, I've only written and posted four poems. You, you start with yeah, those no, high I, hopes, and then they sort of fizzle away. I'm back. I know, yeah, I, I know the, I know the uh, the experience. Hey, Alice. Oh, Alice, I'd like to ask you about. Uh, Mahegan's class actually. Is that, how you, is that how you say his name? Is it Joshua Mahegan or? Mahegan? I think it's I... Megan. I think it's okay. just Megan. Yeah, yeah. What would you like to know? Ooh, I'm. I'm just very. I'm just very interested in. I haven't got any specific questions. I'm just very interested in the whole experience. How he teaches you because I, I've read. I know Matthew loves uh, Joshua, and I've read some of his poems, and I've li- I like them. I admire. I really admire his uh, trial. Of, I, there's a lot. Of, I think there's sort of. Um, I mean, the the modern trial it seems to be um, an exercise in altering your punctuation to create new meanings. And what I really like about <laughs> the yeah. trialets I read on Poetry Foundation by Joshua were that he just didn't alter his punctuation, and the he, no. the new meaning was acquired through build up of sense in the other lines, which I thought was very skillful and quite refreshing. So no, but I, I'm just. I haven't got any specific questions, Alice. I'm just quite curious to know how, how uh, actually, my question is, how does he teach you free verse? How does he, how does he go about that? Um, well, we've done a different sort of type of free verse each week. So, and kind of starting out with like going from, from more to less structure. So the first week we looked at rhetorical modes of organizing a poem we looked at use of typography we looked at now i'm going to forget what we did we looked at like using um metrical forms in an improvisatory way um and now the last week we're just the challenge is like all right so given everything that we've talked about all the different modes um play around and bring them all together but yeah, I let me bring up my notes here because he just says so many amazing things. I mean, the first thing he asked us was like, can you can you define free verse in a positive way? 
in, can you define it without saying, oh, well, it doesn't rhyme or um, it doesn't have rules? And I still haven't been able to do that. <laughs> so, I don't know, he just asks great questions. He just knows everything and he's extremely kind in his feedback. I can't think of a good answer. I mean, even verse liber is a negation. It's just French. It makes it sound a bit posher. Exactly. Yeah. There, there is a there is a slight difference that, and I I use verlieber, however you want to say it, as the distinction. But that, of course, just as you said, Cameron, just is a fancy French way of saying free verse. But mm. there is the thing that is that happens in Dover Beach. That is, I am's with rhymes, but the rhymes are irregular and the lines are of an irregular number of IMs. Mm-hmm. And that that's that's not free verse as we would call it, but it is something and it's not regular metrical. I mean, it's not regular, you know, meter or stanzaic meter. Yeah, sure. It's not 19th century regular meter. I mean, if someone were to write in sort of Dover Beach now, it would be pretty, it would be considered pretty metrical, wouldn't it? But yeah, definitely... It's not. Yeah, it just seems like that deserves a category. Like there, that is a thing, mm. you know. Love song of Alfred Prof Rock is pretty metrical. Yeah, it do, it's similar. Yeah. Yeah, and then the red wheelbarrow. The red. We had a conversation about this, didn't we? Right at the beginning of when we first used WhatsApp, because the red wheelbarrow is. There's like an argument whether yeah. you can read it within line breaks or within stitches. The more I don't know. The the more something is in free verse. And I guess particularly if you don't have rhyme and you're breaking the lines so as to disguise the meter and there's not an additional context that would suggest that one should look for a meter, I start to begin to feel a little bit agnostic about what, like, what it means to discover meter there, you know? I think you're right. I think when one noise with a lot of, sort of websites go, ah, oh, you know, like it's like key definition of what a free verse poem is and they show, throw the red wheelbarrow into sort of play and I yeah it is pretty free verse in that sense but I also think it deserves more than what a lot of sort of websites give it but then I guess most poetry deserves more than what most websites give it I guess I mean no, it goes you... back to what, what is it the AUA oh, you said now you say AUA and I always think AMA and then I get confused I also ask I think, AUA. I'm, just, I'm just calling it AMA but yeah it's, it is I guess it should be an AUA yeah, I asked Alison or whatever, and about how much understanding stress comes down into free verse, I guess, because it certainly has for me, oh, the more and more I write in meter, the more free verse I also start thinking, uh, start thinking about the meter of that and how it's broken, how it isn't. So I guess I wonder if that happens for you, Alice, at all. Everything I know about meter, I only know because I did that class with Josh. You know, since then I've kind of bought a whole bunch of books on it and then I open them and go, oh, this is really boring and then I close them again. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Totally. And you start to realise, like, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot from the class over the last week or so is, you know, at one point he just asked, asked us, what is your line doing? And... There's so many poems of mine that I look back at and go, yeah, I just broke the line there because I felt like it, (laughs) (laughs) which I now, I'm not satisfied with that anymore now that 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 question's been asked of me. I think at times it's okay to break a line because you feel sort of instinctually that it needs to be broken there. But I guess that's there's a difference there between feeling 
a sudden impulse to enter it into sort of force a word into a in jam position and also just just needing to break a line because mm. you needed a line break right yeah the other thing that josh says is like not every line break has to be some kind of amazing coup but right yeah. it's great if there is a reason even if it's just a a small kind of negligible one i suppose this is though i mean this is some has something to do with like what feels to me like the heart of the problem or question or tug of war about difficulty, which is this sort of funny middle ground between the, the author's intention and the reader's sense of an implied intention, like which, which isn't necessarily as simple as like, I want you to learn this lesson and go vote for this person because you read this poem. But like, I think, I think like, we can we can get into um, Reginald Shepard's I think very useful set of categories of different different sorts of difficulty. But but when he talks about modal difficulty, I think he gets close to this question, which is like the the kind of problem we have with a poem when we say, I don't if this is a poem, I don't get what you think a poem is or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like like I don't I am totally with you, Cameron, and and saying like it doesn't you know if if you have an instinct that says break it here break it there. And that that's just as much of a justification as we have for many of the choices we make in any poem. But, but the problem maybe emerges when, when there's not a sense that the reader can get hold of that, that like the thing that is happening has anything to it. Like mm-hmm. if it's, if it's just, like, there, I guess there's a difference between breaking something because of inst like doing something because of instinct and doing something truly arbitrarily. Right. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Cause but, presumably like, hopefully I- your instinct is, is going to like pay off. It's going to get, it's, it's coming from something that maybe you can't put your finger on, but it, but it has an effect. But what happens in difficult poetry when there's an instinct on the reader's part that, Oh, sorry. An instinct on the writer, on the poet's part, but for the reader, it comes across as arbitrary, as arbitrary, and they can't sense any instinct there at all, right? Because then that is just, for all intents and purposes, that is just arbitrariness, because the poet is not the reader. Most, of, yeah, the poet isn't the audience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think that does happen a lot, and, mm. and part of the question maybe is it for every reader? Is it for some readers? Is it, is the writer just essentially an, I mean, I think like the old definition of idiot is like specifically that you're, you're alone. You're like, you're, everything is just to yourself in your own head and, and you're not able to access, like you can't access other people or give that, give them access to what's going on in your head. And, and that does happen, I think with a lot of poetry, but like, I, I, I'm, I tend to be very skeptical about the value of intention beyond the, like even scientists today will talk about biological organisms as being designed in a certain way, just like without even thinking, like a doctor will say like, oh, well, you know, fruit is designed to get you your fiber because it's sweet, but it also delivers, you know, this stuff that you need for your digestion. And it, we, you know, I think when we identify a value in something, we, we sort of reverse engineer an intention 
And, and I think that's the, the degree to which intention matters in poetry. I think it's like very common for the author to have lots on, on his mind that doesn't, that the reader doesn't pick up on. But, but maybe the question is how much is a reader able to get out of what happened, whether or not, because that's the other thing is like, if a reader senses something in a poem, I don't think it matters whether or not the author meant to do that. It matters that it works. Like you get credit for anything that works, whether or not you planned it. I want to start with my boyfriend, Jeffrey Hill. He is He does this interview about difficulty that I think you sent through, Cameron. And he says so many great things, but I think one of the best things that sort of solves this this whole question immediately is Uh-oh. i think i think art has a right not an obligation to be difficult if it wishes and to me that kind of just that just solves it all because it it says <laughs> we can have both we can have difficulty we can have simplicity you're allowed to be difficult if you want you don't have to be strong disagree no, 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 I, no, I mean, I, I think, I think you're, you're, uh, of course you're right that like art, we can ha- have all kinds and, and I'm glad we have all kinds. I think he, he's extremely, you know, well-spoken and, and as, as a uh, Carl Phillips who interviews him says he was really nervous. And you can imagine that of course being nervous going to interview fucking Jeffrey Hill at his house. Uh, but then he also says that he was just like a delightful, lovely, warm host and just like a, a wonderful person to sit down and listen to sitting next to his life-size dollhouse, which is a phrase that threw me because I kept thinking, isn't a life-size dollhouse just a house? Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he has one in his house and he just he's just sat scowling next to it without acknowledging its presence at all. <laughs> and then talk, talk shop brilliantly with Carl Phillips for however long this interview goes before. I, I, I had to stop at the paywall, but it just seemed like it could have gone on yeah, uh, forever. Both he and his wife seemed just like, like a brilliant, lovely, you know, like you, like just like going to a dinner party at their house would be like magical. Absolutely. But I think, but I, but I strongly disagree with at least some of what he says in here, I think. Oh, okay. Well, um, I, I suspect that one of the things you would probably disagree with given your article, which I know you wrote over 10 years ago, so you might not agree with all of it, yeah, but sure, um, no, yeah. he goes on to talk about tyranny requiring simplification. And one of the things the mm. tyrant most cunningly engineers is the gross oversimplification of language. I suspect that might be where you guys diverge. I That is where I most agree with him. Oh. <laughs> Wrong again. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, he's wondering, like, it, whatever he's saying, it's always said so well and interestingly that I'm glad he said, like, you know, whether it's with magic quotation marks or not, I, I like enjoy all of his utterances. Uh, but, but I do think that there's that Carl Phillips raises sort of the central question. And then Jeffrey Hill breezes right past it with a, with a funny, uh, joke. And then, and then talks almost totally beside the point for most of the passage that's I think best known, which is what you, you read from. So Carl Phillips says, what comes up often in reviews of your work is the idea of an overly intellectual bent. In recent reviews of the triumph of love, often the word difficult comes up. People mention that it's worth going through or it, is, or it isn't worth going through. And that question of worth going through to me is the central question. And that's what Jeffrey Hill then 
totally blows off. He says, like a Victorian wedding night. Yes. Which is a pretty good joke. So good. Uh, and then he, mm. yeah. And then he says, let's take difficulty first. And this, and this is a passage I've heard quoted in full and in part a number of times very smartly and very well, because it is a good passage. He says, let's take difficulty first. We are difficult. Human beings are difficult. We're difficult to ourselves. We're difficult to each other. And we are mysteries to ourselves. We are mysteries to each other. One encounters in any ordinary day far more real difficulty than one confronts in the most intellectual piece of work. Why is it believed that poetry, prose, painting, music should be less than we are? Why does music, why does poetry have to address us in simplified terms? When, if such simplification were applied to a description of our own inner selves, we would find it demeaning. I think art has a right not an obligation to be difficult if it wishes. And since people generally go on from this to talk about elitism ver versus democracy, I would add that genuinely difficult art is truly democratic and that tyranny requires simplification. This thought does not originate with me. It's been far better expressed by others. I'm not gonna read the whole long passage, but I do like that he concludes his section on difficulty. There's, and he gets to the tyranny part, the, um, which I do wanna talk about in a second, but I just love that he concludes a section on uh, difficulty by saying so much for difficulty now let's take the other aspect and that's so much for difficulty cameron i wanted to ask you because you're you're uh an, uh, an oxonian is that what y'all weirdly call it um, and, and, some people weirdly uh, call it i refuse yeah to. okay good yeah and an, <laughs> and, uh, and an englishman um is so much for x does that originate with hamlet or is that just the first usage i know of where claudius says so much for him in that in that early speech I feel like that's the first. I don't know of another earlier usage of that construction as like a conversational no, I'm, device. And you know, there's like, was it Milton invented the most phrases, and then Shakespeare did it after Milton? So I'm, I'm gonna right. bet that uh, seems Hamlet that seems like originated. It, it also uh, uh, confirms my partly like whenever I imagine Jeffrey Hill, I realize that half the time I'm actually imagining Derek Jacobi. Um, and, oh, and for part, is such a good act. Well, right. I mean, so part of that, what that then makes me want is like both for Derek Jacoby to play Jeffrey Hill, and it makes me want Jeffrey Hill yes. to be alive again so he can play Claudius. Wouldn't he be a good Claudius? <laughs> he would be. I mean, but yeah. So, so this no, passage of difficulty. Wouldn't he be a good Polonius? Yeah, Maybe he would, would be. be a good yeah. Maybe he's too you know what, for Polonius. I mean, he would be a little bit wasted just because you'd want him to have more lines, but mm -hmm. uh, but he would do it well. And in fact, like a Polonius who has a little bit of spite to him, like a little bit of edge, would would be a kind of a nice because he's usually played as like harmless, which I think is kind of unfair to him. So like a Polonius yeah, who yeah. is also a little bit dangerous would because he is dangerous. Like he, he like orders people to do very, you know, like he is a powerful figure, even if he's sort of foolish. But yeah, no, mm. he could be a good, very good Polonius. I think you're right. Wait, wait. I, Polonius you... is Ophelia's dad. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we just saw Hamlet recently, Polonius was like really, really scheming and uh, mm. it worked really well. But yeah, mm. I mean Jeffrey Hill would be a good anything. Come on. I just I heard someone say that Jeffrey Hill is the voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the voice of like a God from like certain portions of the Bible. <laughs> like, like if like Morgan, Morgan Freeman is like a like a, a, a like the God you want to meet, and you feel like Jeffrey Hill is the God you do meet. <laughs> like, like oh, I was hoping for Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Shit, this is not gonna go well. <laughs> Like a sort of cheap, accessible poet, and you've lived your life, you're and you go to heaven, you're confronted by Jeffrey Hill to give you a lecture. Yeah. Right, Rod McEwen ascends to heaven and meets <laughs> Jeffrey Hill <laughs> before the fact. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a scary day. We've, we've oh, yeah, but top. we totally 
got off got off topic. Well, so I, I, I just think he. Sorry, go ahead, Alice. Yeah. Well, I I feel like this conversation would benefit from bringing in some actual work so we can talk about whether it's because yeah, yeah. Do that. because this triumph of love that the interview is Ooh. a little bit about. I read the bits that were available on on Poetry Foundation, and I'm reading it and thinking this doesn't seem very difficult to me. Yeah, so I I thought I I just pulled out a couple of stanzas that seemed relevant. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So this is part of it. Even now, I tell myself there is a language to which I might speak and which would rightly hear me, responding with eloquence in its turn, negotiating sense without insult given or injury taken. Familiar to those who already know it, elsewhere is justice, it is met also in the form of silence. And then I think this is right at the end or at the end of the section that's that's available. What ought a poem to be? Answer, a sad and angry consolation. What is the poem? What figures? Say, a sad and angry consolation. That's beautiful. Once more, a sad and angry consolation. I mean, I don't know. That doesn't that doesn't pose any issues for me. It's not like exactly um, syntactically straightforward. There'll be some noise. I'm just getting on the triumph of love. Yeah, no, no yeah. I mean, that, that second part is not difficult at all. Would you read the first part again? Because I, I just, there's so many abstractions I lost myself. I, I need to hear it again. Yeah. Even now I tell myself, there is a language to which I might speak and which would rightly hear me. Responding with eloquence in its turn, negotiating sense without insult given or injury taken. Familiar to those who already know it elsewhere as justice, it is met also in the form of silence. I mean, I can't like turn around and tell you exactly what that means, but I know that I like it. And I know that it gives me a certain feeling, a certain, yeah, it, it makes me feel something. Mm. It certainly isn't the parts of the triumph of love that are sort of um, has an abiding sense of searching through other writers, which I think is where most of the accusations of difficulty come from. Oh, okay. Because of the Poetry Foundation obviously pick the parts that they think are either the best or sort of best suit the selection, the whatever, spec, whatever sort of aims of selection they want to take from the poem. Right. So, so the first stanza of A Triumph of Love is divided into uh, Roman numer numerical stanzas by um, I don't know if it gets to a hundred but at least over a hundred or fifty a, a lot a large amount of them the first stanza is one line and it says sun blazed over Romesley a livid rain scarp and then that is quite beautiful and then can I just read out the next section because I think this is where you sort of see more of the denseness of illusion mm -hmm. so he says Guilts were incurred in that place. Now I am convinced. The self-molestation of the child's soul. Would that be it? Free. Petronius, arbiter. Take us in charge. Carry us with you to the house of correction. Angelus Sil Silvius. Guide us while we are there. So I think... From that, that that is sections one, two, and three, and it gets a bit denser than that. 
Where, for instance, when you to the sad and angry consolation, which is probably the most famous lines and definitely the, one of the most beautiful lines from it, is a quote from uh, Lepardi, and he he talk he talks about Lepardi in it, and then unearths those lines and riffs on them, and that's where you get a section talking about um, say again the an angry consolation. I do I I totally agree with you, Addison. I I love the triumph of love, not as much as some of Hill's other book poems. I I don't think it's his greatest, the greatest one of his sort of later long poems, but it's certainly got very good moments. But I also think maybe the selections from Poetry Foundation don't quite do justice to the amount of intellectual referencing that is in that. But I also I also don't think the intellectual the referencing of other poets and writers is it is it is not worth it. I think it is worth it. I think that difficulty is worth it because the amount of riches a poem will, the reader will take away from the poem, I think, is vast if you put your if you put um, your mind to it. And I guess is that what you're getting at, Matthew, when you talk about Hill dodging around the worth quest, the worth element of uh, Philip's question? I, I, I think so, because I, I think that by saying, like, life is difficult, other we are difficult, our day is difficult, he's saying, like, oh, so, so then should do you think poetry should be dumber and simpler than that? And that's a, I mean, that's a straw man, right? I mean, he, he does sort of, he says, like, well, well, if you want simplicity, then you want business slogans and, you know, political cheers. And that is brutally horribly simple simplistic and simplistic even in a kind of a weirdly opaque way but i think that there's he's missing that like part of the human response to difficulty is an attempt to, like it is difficult to be easy to other people like it's difficult to be clear it's difficult to be welcoming it's difficult to take pain you know you have to take pains in order to be kind to others. And I think of the old virtue of gentleness, which is that, you know, our natural state, especially if we are, if we are hungry, if we're poor, if we're cold, our natural state is to be mean and to be rough and hard. And it takes both luxury and discipline to be gentle. Like you have to have the wherewithal to not be scrapping over every little bit that you can fight over, but you also then have to learn and work hard to restrain yourself and to be kind to others, you know, to hold back, not to restrain yourself, to, to, to put yourself in someone else's shoes. That's part of the great work of love, of community, of, you know, knowing somebody and getting, becoming close to somebody. And, and that does involve then like, you know, there are times when we, we do want, our friends to be difficult. Like we want to say like, Hey, go ahead and let me help you with this. Go ahead and, and like, let me carry some of the burden. Let me go ahead and be difficult and I'll be in it with you. But what precedes that is gentleness. And I think like, like part of why we are like the world and life is hard and is difficult in a way that is partly because it doesn't give a shit about us. And then we, you know, we do our best to give a shit about other people and make ourselves gentle to them. And then that makes it worth doing the hard things, right? That like, then you say like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and, you know, take care of you when you're sick or like have a kid or 
help you move or what, you know, listen to your problems. Like the difficulty is, is definitely, you don't want there never to be difficulty, but the difficulty is not the cause. Difficulty goes without saying difficulty is the easy part in a way like that's difficulty is cheap, I guess is what I'm getting at. And, okay. and that kind of well, you know, hospitality, which I think is, is a better term for it than like ease or simplicity. Hospitality is, is extremely expensive and mm-hmm. very valuable for that reason. I, I do think like when you get to the political slogans and the, and the tyrannical speech, I mean, he says later, uh, he's talking about um, Hacker, I don't, whom I don't know what he's saying. Basically, someone else said this better than I did. He says, Hacker argues with specific reference to the Nazis that one of the things the tyrant most cunningly engineers, as Alice read earlier, is the gross oversimplification of language because propaganda requires that the minds of the collective respond primitively to slogans of incitement. And any complexity of language, any ambiguity, any ambivalent, any ambivalence implies intelligence, maybe an intelligence under threat, maybe, maybe an intelligence that is afraid of consequences, but nonetheless, an intelligence working in qualifications and revelations, resisting therefore tyrannical simplification. That is where I'm totally with him. I have no, I have no developed thought about that. I just have a strong awareness of and fear of oversimplified uh, political speech. But I think, I just think it's the the thing that, that Carl Phillips points out as worth. And that's what Hill misses saying that like I've not read a lot of Hill, but I do think that when when I have read him for the most part, he does seem to be worth it. And that's because his his work is not difficult in that raw, mean, barbaric way. Right. It's difficult in a way that at its best, at least the best stuff I've read that involves that welcome. It involves that the same thing that he that Carl Phillips found when he went to his house, which was that. Jeffrey Hill was a good host, welcomed and like made it feel good to sit down and talk with him and then made it feel good to go on those more difficult parts of the conversation. So I I think that is what good poetry does. But I think he's he's sort of skipping over the real the real nub of the matter, because when I read language poets, when I read Flarf poets, when I read a lot of honestly, when I read a lot of John Berryman, I mean, not not John Berryman, John John Ashbery, when I read a lot of John Ashbery, I, I don't. I don't encounter gentleness. I just encounter, if not barbarism, you know, it's some, it's sort of an indifference, but that, that kind of difficulty, which is, which again, indifference is cheap. Indifference is you find that fucking, you find that on the subway, right? That's, that is, you're right. You know, he's right that you can find that anywhere, but he's not right that therefore our poetry should be that way. Yeah. I feel like what you are circling around here, Matthew, is a, is the connection between is this sense of laziness, like mm. poetry just sort of being difficult because the poet didn't take didn't bother to take the time? Yeah. I would never put Ashbury in that category, and the reason I can forgive Ashbury all his difficulty is that I genuinely feel like he doesn't mind what you take from his poems. I think they're all written really quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's he's said as much, um, yeah, yeah. and I think it's sort of like take it or leave it, you know. And there's a lot of beauty, yeah. and there's a lot of confusion, and a lot of stuff that's really irritating. But you know, we we ended up putting him on a huge huge, huge pedestal, but I don't think he yeah, ever yeah. really asked for that. Um, no. But I, yeah. say, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that for me, at least, I don't think it's a matter of, of like insufficient effort so much as it tends to be a matter of insufficient care. Mm. 
So I, like, I think laziness is, is related, but not quite at least the way I feel about it, right? It's Can we dig into a little bit? Please dig in a little bit into the difference between effort and care? Because it seems very interesting. Because I guess why I'd ask Alice is I find it certainly disconcerting that Ashbury wrote his poems very quickly. I don't I don't like that. And that makes me like Ashbury a little bit less. Because I guess where Matthew is more interested in care, I'm more interested in effort. And if I feel that the poet mm. isn't sort of taking language seriously enough then I don't know if I want to take their writing very seriously I don't mean sort of serious in a sort of pretentious un like un like unamused way I mean more in sort of I don't want to don't know if I want to spend time with their writing if they haven't at first spent time with it so I guess that's what because you you must be a bit different to that Alice if you like i i do like i like a lot of ashbury um some trees from his first collection is one of my favorite poems of all time but i do dislike a lot of ashbury and i'm rather ambiguous towards ashbury on the whole so i just wonder if you is if a if a poet if you learn that a poet doesn't spend time over their poems alice do you think any less of the poet the poems and the poet for it or would do you still take just the poems as objects for your interests and totally um, disassociate the poet taking time or not taking time in them at all from the poems. I don't dissociate it. Um, and I know, I mean, Sun Trees is one of my favourites as well, and I know that he did spend time on that one. I think when I think about this, I think about uh, I lived in Japan for a little bit and I learned calligraphy and the way that oh. they teach you to do that is just to write the same character over and over again and you realize that it's not actually it's about the practice yes but there's going to come a moment where you write that character perfectly and that's going to be it's going to feel like it's by magic and I think about that when I think about yeah. Ashbury and I think about the poets who I really really love over here who whether they write quickly or not the result often feels like that to me it's like they've you know obviously Ashbury's a, a genius like a giant intellect um so when he lands somewhere when he has that kind of perfect moment it seems almost like it's by chance and it might be surrounded by a lot of confusing bullshit <laughs> essentially <laughs> um yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, I've tried to read a poem like the skaters, for example, like I couldn't give, I couldn't give a fuck, like, I'm not going to read, I'm not going to read that thing. But when I look at it, I think, okay, well, he's, he's just kind of amusing himself. And there might be some pleasure here, or there might not, I personally don't have the patience. But yeah, I just keep coming back to that idea of like, the poem might take 20 minutes, but the what got you to that 20 minutes is what matters. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think you're, you're talking about like skill as, and I was just going to try to find if there's a good, um, and y'all may both be better at this than I am, if there's a good uh, shortish Ashbury poem to read to give people something in their ears. But but I, I'm, I'm totally with you in, in thinking about like th there are skills and like I, I don't care at all how long a particular poem took because I know not only are there 
masterpieces that came quickly, but there are also, you know, plenty of examples of, po of like poets slaving over something for months and even years, and they just need to throw it away. They just need to, you know, they just need oh, to give up on it. Yeah, I guess I want to revise what I said a little bit because obviously, I I think a great poem can be written in a well a certain amount of time that might be sure, but I guess that skill is sort of as Alice was talking about writing the same symbol, you build up a certain level of skill over time. And if you're a genius like Ashbury, you build up a large amount of skill, both from sort of instinctual natural gifts and from continuous technique mm. to a point where you can write a poem out of that built up technique. So that in that sense, the poem has, even if not the single specific poem, but just the technique of any one given poem has been considered over for a long time. Mm. What I guess I'm a little bit more cold towards is the idea that he dashes off the poems and then pays little attention to the language of the poems or at least doesn't gives them more gives them less gives them as much significance as they it amuses me here now so I'll write this down I guess yeah. I find that a little cold or at least that does not seem to that doesn't approach that, my specific taste in poetry. Yeah, sorry, go on, Matthew. Oh, no, and just to clarify, you mean like the, what bothers you is is the is the the appearance that he is not putting care into or putting effort into making the poem as as rich or as as worthwhile as it could be. Uh, yeah, or like more than not putting effort into something as. Um, not putting effort into a poem more than just that the poem is amusing or amuses him for the moment right. in the right. Yeah. Moment. And I, I mean, I, th I think I come out on the same end as you, but it's partly for me, it, it has more to do with his not caring about the reader's experience. Cause I think like I, you know, there's also Hurt Crane say who, you know, it's hard to think of anybody who put more effort into making every word as meaningful as possible. And you know, in a Hart Crane poem, that there's going to be a, the you know, like that in theory, there could be a whole essay written about every line and every word is going to, is going to, you know, have 12 different aspects of, of, you know, meaning to it. That already exhausts me. And what irritates me about that, what puts me off from that kind of poem is that that he's doing he seems to be doing all of that he's putting i know he's putting a lot of effort into it but it's all for himself that it doesn't seem to be he doesn't it doesn't seem to involve any care for the reader's experience so which is care why like the way i think, I think the... ashbury maybe i think ashbury may be lazier than crane but the result for me is that they both feel they both feel like they don't care about my re my experience as a reader. So I I encounter their poems in very much the same way, even though I totally believe Hart Crane worked a lot harder over every word. But so at you fight, so as in Hart Crane's putting so much meaning to a line bit just becomes too time consuming for a reader and that's why he doesn't care. I'm a I'm a bit confused about what you mean by not caring for the reader in that sense. Well, I guess like if you show me your poem and I say, oh, this is a little hard to follow or this is a little dense. And then you say, well, let me, I can prove to you in, in, in a very uh, convincing way how much meaning is crammed into here and how many allusions there are and how, 
how you know how many different ways you could read this, and you can you can give me a, a you know a lengthy and complex and even persuasive explication of the whole poem. I I, I may believe you, and I may I mean I what I would be inclined to say then is, wow, that's impressive. It's not for me, but to me, all of that work is not the work of saying how is this going to strike somebody's ear? How is this going to appear to somebody who walks into the room and encounters this for the first time. That that's a particular kind of work that I, I think is just a different thing. And and if you're not doing that work, then I'm I tend not to be inclined to to want to spend much time with with your poems. I was just gonna say, can I read a little Ashbury so that we have oh, a little bit Yeah, yeah, please did you find what yeah, yeah what did you find? So this is my you know, I keep saying some trees is my favorite, but this is far and away my favorite of his and it is pretty simple okay so it's called the history of my life once upon a time there were two brothers then there was only one myself I grew up very fast before learning to drive even there was I a stinking adult I thought of developing interests someone might take an interest in no soap. I became very weepy for what had seemed like the pleasant early years. As I aged increasingly, I also grew more charitable with regard to my thoughts and ideas, thinking them at least as good as the next man's. Then a great devouring cloud came and loitered on the horizon, drinking it up for what seemed like months or years. Would would you mind uh, reading that again, please? Yep. Okay. A History of My Life. Once upon a time, there were two brothers. Then there was only one, myself. I grew up very fast, before learning to drive even. There was I, a stinking adult. I thought of developing interests someone might take an interest in. No soap. I became very weepy for what had seemed like the pleasant early years. As I aged increasingly, I also grew more charitable with regard to my thoughts and ideas, thinking them at least as good as the next man's. Then a great devouring cloud came and loitered on the horizon, drinking it up for what seemed like months or years. Yeah. I, I like it. I don't love it. A lot of it strikes me as just straight up autobiographical, though. Like, it, it doesn't strike me as a Ashbury calling card in terms of sort of elusive jumping around from unconnected uh, phrase to the next. It does strike me as very Ashburyan and sort of the very casual and yet somehow almost bardic voice. Yeah, it's... It is, I think, essentially, it's a whole um, autobiography in whatever twelve lines or something like that. Right. I mean, and that, and the he was setting a stage and and you know putting characters on it and giving them attributes and telling you things about them, and they were such that you could build on what you had already digested. When you give a reader something, you're sort of asking him to keep a ball in the air, and you give him some more balls to keep in the air, and 
you have to be thoughtful about what what you're asking him to keep track of and integrate into his understanding. And I think in that poem, he gets to a, a sort of a strange and ambiguous, possibly symbolic, you know, image at the end. But before he's gotten there, he's sort of he's given us a a pretty clear, recognizable, manageable enough world to digest. So that then by the time we get to this big weird cloud that's devouring the horizon, we we have we know what to stick it in. And and so you know, I I'm I'm kind of with Cameron and finding like I, I like that poem and I find it evocative and a little bit eerie. I don't I'm not greatly moved by it, but I do feel as if I am it was written with an understanding of people's ability to take it in when I read other poems of his, not unfortunately like the, the one that immediately came to mind was the one I already wrote about in that, um, that essay a million years ago. Uh, but in, in his other poems, I, I often find that he, he throws a ball at you. He, he gives you, you know, he starts to set the stage, but then he, he sets a different stage and then he puts some more stuff on there that don't, that doesn't match up with what he already put on there. And so by the time you get to the end, you have so many different, elements to keep track of. You don't know how to bring them all together. You certainly don't know how he brings them all together. And then he just leaves you like somebody who's, you know, who like says he's going to get up to go to the bathroom and then just ditches you with the bill. <laughs> that like That's the experience I have reading most Ashbury poems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so here's, here's the thing. Um, it's the difference between caring whether you keep all the balls in the air or not. Ashbury doesn't mind if you drop a ball. That was the first half of my conversation with Alice and Cameron about difficulty. The second half will be coming soon. I think I'm going to put it on the main feed. I'm not sure. I've got got some interesting stuff coming up. I don't know exactly how I'm going to break it all down, but will be more episodes coming on the Secret Show feed as well. Please do go to sleeverickets.substack.com and sign up today, either uh, either to support the show and get a bunch of free episodes or or just for the free subscription, you will get previews and for a week you will have access to all 13 episodes of The Secret Show that are up now. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>